we've seen it where many times the chemical sensitivity lasts longer than the mold sensitivity. They get the mold clean from their home. They actually get with some of the correct medical professionals and they start detoxing from the mold and things like that. And what they find out is that the chemical sensitivity lingers many times even longer than the mold. So cleaning the house or other structure for chemically sensitized individuals is a huge subset of the mold arena right now. You are listening to the Manage Mold Podcast. This podcast was made for families on a health journey that need the real, no-holds-barred answers on how to create and ensure a healthy home. This show should be your launching pad to give you the information, guidance, and inspiration and clarity you need on your journey back to a healthy home. My name is Dean Malstead. You can find and follow me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Welcome to Manage Mold. Welcome to the Manage Mold Podcast. We are here again today with Michael Pinto of Wonder Makers Environmental. And Michael and I are going to talk through an interesting subject today and one that possibly some people have never considered. And some of you are probably going to wonder, why are you going to talk about that on a mold podcast? Well, here's what we're going to talk about today. Cleaning for sensitized and actually chemically sensitized individuals. And this is a really important piece that I've got a lot of clients, Michael's had a lot of people, and Michael has done a ton of training on, is is this particular piece is, how do you clean for chemically sensitized individuals, and what are the good parts about it, and what are the difficult parts about it? Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Dean. It's always good to be back here. Thank you again for inviting me in to help educate your uh, listeners and your viewers. I appreciate you doing this. So why don't you get us started and tell us what this means? Well, I think the question that you asked is a good one, and it deserves a, a fair and balanced answer here. What we have found over the years is that individuals who are impacted by mold, particularly when their health is impacted in addition to their structures, and that gets into the whole uh, Siri and whether people have genetic predispositions to it and things like that. But one of the interesting sidebars to that that we have found, and I think you can support this with your experience as well, is that many of the people who become mold sensitized not only are cross-sensitive to perhaps Lyme disease and some other things, but they either become chemically sensitized or there's a component of bad remediation where chemicals are used improperly that causes it. There's a whole range of ways that these things interact together. But the upshot is whether there's been bad use of chemicals in their particular home or office as a means to try and deal with the mold, or whether it's just a cross-sensitivity that develops from their sensitivity to the mold, we do end up with a lot of our clients that have chemical sensitivities, and then they have to struggle with dealing with that as well as uh, dealing with their mold issues. And let me also just throw one more thought in there is that we've seen it where many times the chemical sensitivity lasts longer than the mold sensitivity. They get the mold clean from their home. They actually get with some of the correct medical professionals and they start detoxing from the mold and things like that. And what they find out is that the chemical sensitivity lingers uh, many times even longer than the mold. So 
cleaning the house or other structure for chemically sensitized individuals is a huge subset of the mold arena right now. Yeah, we would agree professionally and personally as a family, what you just said is exactly correct. That we could throw EMF in there, but that's a whole different deal. So we'll <laughs> we'll stay away from that today. No, I'll talk about that at some point too. But yes, there's once this, I am not a physician, so I want to make sure everybody remembers that, that I'm not officially trained as a medical doctor or anything like that. So the next statement I'm going to offer is a professional opinion. But what I will say is that a lot of these environmental factors, in my experience, are such that we have to watch multiple pieces and manage multiple pieces. And just like they found with the connection between Lyme exposure and mold and things like that, it's, you know, we live in a, in a complex world and sometimes we have to keep our eyes open for more than just a single causative agent in terms of people's health or their building's health. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So here would be my primary question that I would have, I think, if, if I was doing some of the initial research, but obviously I see this on some social media groups, especially that I'm part of, is there seems to be a chasm between what professionals seem to be doing largely in the industry and, and what people are, are getting in quotes or bids to do remediation in their home and then what news is coming to them and recommendations through the social media groups. So we're talking about everything from the biocides, fungicides, antimicrobials on the one hand to cleaning with vinegar and cleaning with ammonia and borax on the other hand. Is this kind of where we're going today? Is that part of what our discussion is going to be? Uh, well, we can talk about that, but right before the end of that question, I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction, and that <laughs> is the one that I'm going to answer because my mind was moving there. Well, that's uh, where I want you to go. <laughs> okay. The difficulty with cleaning for chemically sensitized individuals is, is similar to what we have with mold in that there's a number of people who are approaching either one of those issues more from a traditional industrial hygiene standpoint or from an occupational health and safety standpoint. And so initially they look at it and they say, well, every reading on the mold spores that we're getting is below outside. And so, so your house must be okay. And they don't dig any deeper into the numbers and see that there's molds that represent water damaged buildings as compared to normal molds and some of the other things that we look at. And they, they sometimes just take it on this basic issue and say, well, this shouldn't be causing anybody any problems. And that's very true. And even more so, I would think, in the chemical arena where people have this tendency because there's more standards. You know, if, if you say, well, what is in this chemical that they use for cleaning? Well, it was pine oil and butyloxaline or something like that. And they'll go in there, well, we don't have a, an occupational standard for pine oil, but we do have one for butyloxaline. So they'll look up that number and they'll say, look, you're 100 times lower than what the eight-hour time-weighted average that somebody can safely be exposed to in a workplace. And therefore, you're so much lower than this, then it can't be causing you a problem. And they tend to uh, conflate the occupational exposure levels with residential exposure levels. And they also tend to ignore the fact that once a person becomes chemically sensitized or mold sensitized, that the exposure levels that can trigger health effects 
is much, much lower than the person who's not sensitized. And that's not me pretending to be a doctor or anything. That's just, that's out there in all the medical literature and, and all the scientific literature. That's just a, a well-known, well, and that's actually what sensitized means is that you're more sensitive now to uh, potentially having greater impacts from lower exposure levels than the non-sensitized individual. Where do you want to go from here? What do you see as the biggest issue people struggle with on this? Well, first of all, I would say that there's this strong connection for those who are saying, again, well, geez, I was tuning in for a mold topic and now we're talking chemicals and stuff. The first thing I would say is that there's so much similarity between how they need to clean for their mold exposures and their potential chemical exposure. And there's so many that are crossing over that uh, don't give up just because we're not constantly using the M word here during this uh, presentation. But I would share, and I'm not trying to go too self-promotional or anything, but there's a series of articles that I wrote for a magazine called Remediation and Restoration. And it was five parts and it's called Cleaning Structures for Chemically Sensitized Individuals. And certainly we don't have enough time to read or go through every one of those items in there. But what I do think is interesting and what I would like to share with your listeners is the fact that there's a reasonable approach when we get into some of these. And I know, Dean, that you'll have access to these or I'll send them to you. Uh, They probably can't see much here and many of them are just listening on the audio. But in these articles, in these series of articles, there's actually a chart that I put together Because what I found is that there really isn't a comprehensive list anywhere of things that you can at least consider, if not try, when you're in a situation where these homes and offices and things need to be cleaned. And again, I would say there's so much crossover between some of these techniques for cleaning for mold and chemicals that it's worth even the mold person taking a look at some of these. So. Yeah, and I think what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to link people to that article. And my strong encouragement to folks who are not professionals, their clients, I encourage people all the time to get into our profession and the writings and the information of our profession. Obviously, I link them to the Wondermakers website because you have such a good approach to getting people the things that they need. And we'll definitely link them to this article, and that, that'll be easy for them to find because you can type it in in five seconds. It's in front of your face. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Let me just talk for a moment then in terms of the big picture aspect of this because that's what we tried to lay out in the first part of the article, and then we carried it all the way through. And essentially, when we're dealing with trying to clean for chemicals, there's I broke it into four different channels, if you will, or avenues of of how to think about it. And the first one is the easiest one, and it matches most closely with the mold, and that is that they have to focus on source removal. So whether it's the fungal colonies that are growing or whether it's the rag saturated with some chemical that got left in the basement or whether it's a piece of furniture where chemicals spilled on it and got absorbed into the cushions, whatever it may be, you have to get rid of that. That session or that idea also goes farther, however, and this is where it really crosses over with some of the mold things, in that 
just like mold spores and hyphal fragments and mycotoxins and other aspects of the fungal world can hook on to dust and move around in your atmosphere and your environment easier if it's attached to the dust particles, even more so with the chemicals. They can be adsorbed and absorbed into the different small microscopic particles so that even if you get rid of the cushion that had the solvent spill on it, for example, those solvent gases that have off-gassed and gotten into the air, instead of just dissipating 100% and eventually getting to the point, well, they're vapors, they're even to the point where they might be organic gases and you would think that they would dilute, depending on how much dust you have around, they absorb and then desorb. And then as the temperature and the atmospheric condition changes and the pressure and everything, you get this constant back and forth, which does two things. One, it makes it very difficult for the people to understand and the investigators to really hone in on what's going on. And number two is that it creates different exposure levels at different points in time, which is why some people can be in the house for a few hours and not have anything. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't even necessarily have to relate to the HVAC system kicking on, but something happens, the temperature rises, the temperature falls, things off gas from the dust particles. So cleaning the structure, a deep cleaning, and very similar to condition to mold remediation cleaning is always going to be the first step with cleaning for a chemically sensitized individual. You know, the thing that I think people get hung up on here, and and tell me if this is true for what you find, is number one, especially, I'll say especially males in our species, have a difficult (laughs) time. If we don't see it, it's hard to believe it. That's the first one. Then you add the second component, and with what you just said, it doesn't always have an odor, right? Correct. Yeah, and that's the tricky part. So there's a number of chemicals that the sensitivity concentration can be way below the olfactory concentration. And so that's difficult for people to understand that individuals can sense and react to chemicals at levels below what they can actually smell. And so, and then the other thing that's true too is that the person who becomes sensitized, their sense of smell and or just the understanding that the material is there may be heightened, even if the normal person, if you will, the one who hasn't been sensitized comes in and says, well, I can't smell anything. And we get this all the time, of course, in the restoration industry. The, the classic case of this is the smoke odor. Exactly. The is there, you know, immediately after the fire or is maybe even in the house when the fire started and got some exposure, whatever it may be. Now they become sensitized and we go in, we do an amazing job as restoration professionals and we identify and we clean and we remove it all and maybe even do some smoke sealer and things like that. And 10 people come in the house and nine of them say, wow, don't smell anything, smells fresh, smells wonderful. And the person who's sensitized says, nope, there's still, I can still smell it. Or even worse, you know, my eye is starting to flutter, my head hurts, my yes. my heart is racing. And, you know, at some point, uh, we do have to admit sometimes that the 
sensitization that comes from a particular exposure may be such that that person may never be able to reasonably get back into that structure. Yeah. This is where there's a strong similarity. So much of what we learned about mold remediation and what we coupled together with experience, our experience in the fire restoration and our janitorial division, actually, and our office cleaning that we did with the training, like through the RAA and how you trained and how you wrote through the book, Fungal Contamination, is, and this plays into the mold and even the chemical sensitized part, is there tends to be amongst both consumer and professional the idea of covering it up. The use of a certain sealer, there's there's a consumer sealer that implies that it kills things, but it actually doesn't do that. <laughs> and even as a sealer, it's not necessarily the best one you could buy. And then there's there's the group that says, well, if we cover everything up, it can't get out. And that's a lot of that can be discussion for a different day, but it's a matter of really getting at the source, like you've said, and removing the source, doing the actual hands-on elbow grease cleaning, right, of these areas. Well, it does, but there's also that leads directly into the second phase of the article where we talk about neutralization. And I think this is a little bit more chemically focused than it is mold focused. You do have people who advertise products that destroy the mold or break down the mycotoxins and things like that, which I still remain very skeptical of. I think that if you're dealing with mycotoxins and that's your issue, you need to think about physically removing them, not trying to break them down in place because it always then leaves the question, well, what are you going to have when you break it down? Yes. Uh, But this is even worse in the chemical field where people say, well, there's odors and we're going to neutralize it. And their two approaches are either to cover it, like you said, or to try and run the more sophisticated scam, if you will, in some cases, that's what it is, and saying, well, we can take one chemical and we'll match it with another chemical, and then those two chemicals will work to break down one another, and then all you'll have left is water vapor and carbon dioxide and stuff like that. Right. And and ultimately, that can work. I mean, the science is there that shows that that's what we call chemical reactions. And it's easier to do that with chemistry, particularly volatile chemicals, than it is with hard particles like mold spores and fragments and things. But the risk you run in a situation like that is how are you going to make sure that you get it all? What are you breaking it down into? What are the intermediary byproducts that are being created while it goes through the next phase of the breakdown and that sort of stuff. And these are all chemicals that just get kind of pushed aside when when people talk about this. So this idea that somehow we can come in and magically spray something and that's going to neutralize all of our stuff is really an issue that we talk about in the series of articles. And we encourage people to be careful about that. And then, Dean, I'm going to throw one more at you before I let you jump back in again. In this particular case, the chemicals are so, the term neutralization is misused, in my opinion, is misused in the industry. Because what a lot of people do is what we call masking agents. And so I don't know if if people know much of their chemistry or anything, but, and I'm not picking on a particular product, but Febreze is a a big one that says, well, it's going to 
make your stuff smell better. You got stinky tennis shoes that your teenagers wearing and we spray the stuff in there and that's going to make them smell better. And the answer is it doesn't really make it smell better. What it's, it's very sophisticated chemistry. It's taking a rather large hydrocarbon molecule, which is your stink molecule, if you will. Yep. And it's wrapping something around it so that even though you're being, it's going into your body, you know, through your respiratory system, your nose doesn't register it because as it hits the olfactory nerves, it's covered by something else. So it smells better. And that's great. The difficulty is if you're chemically sensitized, it's not just the smell. It's once that molecule gets covered by something else, that might actually allow it to be driven deeper into your respiratory system because you're not immediately coughing, you're not immediately expelling it or taking shallower breaths or something like that. So these chemicals get coated, get taken in deeper, and at some point the body breaks down the coating, and then what is that doing? It's releasing the chemical, and then they're going to have even you know more problems because that chemical has been in their body. So the neutralization portion of it, you got to just be really, really careful when you're talking about cleaning environments because you're not really cleaning, you're, you're masking. And that's really what a lot of the neutralization agents are called, are masking agents. So, Yeah, that's a good point. So in that, with the neutralization, do you want to park briefly on the natural versus, I don't know what you would call the other, I suppose industrial chemical, but people have, people on the natural side have all kinds of nasty names for quote unquote chemicals, which water is a chemical. And I try to tell people that all the time and it's a good solvent. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about the natural versus the synthetic, I suppose we could call it? Well, I think the, thank you for leading in that direction. I think that is important discussion. Just because it's a masking agent or just because it's a neutralizing agent, where it comes from isn't as important to me as what it's trying to do and what you're trying to do with it. And so For example, in the mold arena, and I'm not being negative toward any particular product or anything like that, but people will fog essential oils in their house as part of their process of trying to deal with a mold. And and for some people that works. But what I would share is that, man, if you've got somebody who's chemically sensitized in addition to mold sensitized, or we even have had cases where they've done some of the essential oils and become chemically sensitized by what they've put in the environment. And I've just, I'm never a big one for subtraction by addition, where we need to get rid of this stuff. So the way we're going to get rid of it is we're going to add some other stuff and then somehow we're going to have less when we get done. Exactly. There is some chemistry that works in those sort of situations. There are things that we can do on occasion that works, but by and large, subtraction by addition is not the the best approach. And so whether it's vinegar that people are trying to use as a neutralizing agent, which does work, whether it's essential oils, whether it's masking agents, uh, a little bit more sophisticated, like we were talking about uh, previously with some of the commercial products, whether they're smoke sealers, whether they're deodorizers. And then remember, too, some of the deodorizers are nothing more than we're just going to add something more 
powerful than what you're smelling right now. We're just going to fill the room with ocean breeze scent or clean linen scent, or we're going to light candles, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. It's like, really? <laughs> You're going to just flood the thing? I had a, a situation one time where the person was clearly chemically sensitized and was not able to work in her office environment. And I pulled five, count them, five electric plug-in deodorizers. Oh, wow from the receptacles in office area that was a little bigger than normal, maybe 15 by 20 feet. Big office, but not big when you're talking five Peter style. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was bad. That's a and lot then, of stuff going in the air. That's a lot of chemicals, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, subtraction by addition, just in my opinion, doesn't work and you have to be careful. So can you do me a favor? Can you address two things that seem to plague part of the, oh, I don't know. It's called the social media world. Tell me about cleaning with vinegar and with ammonia. Okay. Both of those are considered to be cleaning agents. They're working on slightly different principles. The vinegar is going to be acidic. The ammonia is going to be alkaline. And that gets into the idea of neutralization where if you have, uh, and we do this in in fire restoration all the time, this is a very important concept that you want to pick your cleaning chemicals that are going to react most effectively to draw out the chemicals. So I don't have nearly as much uh, problem with people cleaning with either ammonia or vinegar. Do not mix them, people. That is not a good match. But one or the other Remember that with both vinegar and ammonia, if you're chemically sensitized, just using them may be enough to trigger other things too. So they both have a fair amount of uh, volatility to them. So you can smell them rapidly, uh, particularly if you're applying them with a spray bottle or a wiping rag. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, the, the, the chemistry works if you have residue that is bothering you that is of an alkaline nature and I take vinegar, which is acidic, and wipe that on, particularly in a cleaning function when you're using a, a physical action, all you're doing there is you're using the chemicals to help enhance the physical action of the cleaning. In other words, it's going to loosen it from the surface and pull it away. If you're just fogging the vinegar or fogging the ammonia and assuming that somehow that's going to neutralize something, then that's Generally, not only is that not going to work, it's going to make the situation worse for people. Yeah, that's a good point. And that crosses over, not just for vinegar or ammonia, that crosses to almost every product I can think of. Well, exactly. And that also leads me into one of the third channels. We've talked about cleaning. That's always the number one channel. Then we've talked about neutralization a little bit. Another channel in terms of dealing with uh, cleaning for chemically sensitized individuals is what we call oxidation. I was hoping and, you would go there. <laughs> and in essence, it's a more sophisticated version of neutralization where you're using chemicals that have a higher reactivity uh, related to them. But again, it is this idea that you're going to do subtraction by addition. If we find exactly the right... So here's a, a very complex hydrocarbon molecule of some odor causing something or chemical that's damaging people. 
And the idea is that, well, we don't want to just cover it up like we talked about because that makes it worse. And so what happens if we hit it with something that actually breaks it apart, blows it apart, destroys it, vaporizes it? You'll see all of this terminology in the marketing stuff. And oxidizers, whether it be ultraviolet light, whether it be uh, hydrogen peroxide, whether it be some combination of chlorine and hydrogen peroxide, which is your stuff from the Sandia National Lab that everybody talks about. Oh, this is NASA. This is, you know, the military grade disinfectants and that sort of stuff, which is all true, or, or at least parts of that is true. But ozone generators, hydroxyl radical generators, there's going to be all sorts of things. There's even chemistry that they've built into drywall now where the air moves through the gypsum board and there's residual chemicals in the gypsum board, which reacts with that, and breaks down stuff. I mean, there's paint you can put on. There's the, I'm trying to think it's in one of the Scandinavian countries. I want to say Sweden, but anyway, there's a product that they've developed that rolls out that you can put underneath your floor, you can put underneath your carpet, you can put underneath your walls and paint over it. And basically what it is, is again, as the chemicals move into the environment, it moves through this fabric or whatever it is, and that fabric's impregnated with things that are then going to oxidize and break it down. All of those are based on interesting chemistry. All of those have a place in the world. We've recommended and or encourage people to use every one of those, but you just have to understand what you're doing and it never substitutes. It's always an add-on. It never substitutes for doing detail cleaning. Exactly. But (laughs) I will tell you, you have to be especially careful with the ozone generators that people are using for oxidization. And And I'm not attacking any manufacturer or anything like that. I just said a moment ago, we recommend stuff all the time. Even high-level ozone flooding on occasion can be very helpful. But you have to know what you're getting into, and you also have to understand the risks. Sometimes it's going to work perfectly. Uh, Skunk odors is a really good example of that. Mm, Uh, Some of the fire odors, it can be very effective at that. Yep. When you're trying to get rid of residual residual chemical exposure issues, sometimes the use of the ozone generators can be can be worse. I just got done umpiring a case in Canada. You don't in Canada, they if it's an arbitration, it's an umpire, not an arbitrator. So I served as an umpire in a case in Canada where they ozone the entire house after a fire and they ruined it and and made. Uh, at least one of the occupants very sick. Yeah. And part of the problem with that is uh, within a few minutes of having a couple of independent adjusters go into the house to look at it, they supposedly had done their cleaning, but they did a crappy job doing the cleaning. Still had lots of soot and residual fire material all over the place. And the idea was in their mind, well, we're just going to hit it with it. Instead of doing the hard work and getting it all clean, then using the ozone or the other oxidizers as an adjunct, everybody wants to cut the corner and say, well, you know, we'll just give it a lick and a promise, and then this, then this magic machine will take care of everything else. Yeah, exactly. I want to throw in here quick exactly what you just walked through as far as that 
even the things that we might shy away from on a regular basis in certain cases may have a use, ozone being one of those. In 1998, when we took over the company that we own, we were a janitorial carpet cleaning floor care and restoration company. And I'll tell everyone that even today, we still actually have almost everything that we've ever owned and current equipment in our shop. We just aren't actually actively remediating and restoring anymore. We've got a couple buildings, so we keep it for that. My house, we keep it for that. And we kind of keep it just in case. But here's my point is, we've got, when I took over 98, we had some of the largest ozone, portable ozone generators you could buy at the time. Right. And we added to that fleet over time. In the very first few years, I was quite ignorant about all kinds of things, including the chemical side, the ozone side, and I got over, I overexposed myself to the ozone where I can pick up on it immediately and I can feel it in the bottom of my lungs. I think that is probably kind of a phantom reaction. I don't know that I have that much in the bottom of my lungs, but maybe... Maybe there's something we don't understand, but anyway, I can pick up on ozone. But all of these things, everything that you have just listed, including chlorine bleach, including chlorine bleach that doesn't come from the grocery store, chlorine bleach that comes from the Jansen industry that is quite potent, all of this yeah. stuff sits on my shelf. And there, there are very specific moments and times to use it, but you have to have a pre-plan to use it, then how you're going to use it. And then you have to have the after plan is what we call it, is what are you going to do once you've done these things? Usually you need to air out the structure or you need to have some sort of an exposure guideline so that when people go in, either while you're doing the process or after, that you're not lingering in there unprotected or that you don't have fresh air. It's a lot like going into confined space is how we treat it. And so I just want people to understand that. As much as we might talk negatively or sound negative about some of these things, when you understand chemistry, some of these, what people would think would be dangerous or even for sensitized people in certain cases, they might actually be the right fix if they're done correctly. But that takes some thought. Well, and, and I want to emphasize that, yes, I, we have to be careful that we don't come across completely negative on all of these technologies. And I agree exactly with what you said. I consider myself to be a big toolbox guy. Yeah. That that I want to know about all these different uh, processes and pieces of equipment. I'm willing to learn. I try not to be prejudiced. But what I try and do is, I, in some respects, I am prejudiced in terms of my client's best interest. And so each case is individual. You have to understand some of these things. The other thing I'll tell you, and this is more so with the chemistry side of things than it is even with the mold side of things. There's a bit more in my mind of a stair-step approach when you're dealing with chemical exposures than you are with mold. I think with mold, we are focusing on the cleaning and we are focusing on some of the additional engineering controls. And, and it's more about which cleaning technique is going to work and or which which additive to the cleaning, because that's what you use cleaning products for is to help you, like I said, break down that uh, bond between the mold spore that's on the surface and getting it off and getting it into your rag or your microfiber cloth or your HEPA vacuum or something. So, but when you're dealing with chemistry, you have to be a little bit more careful with that. And many times we'll tell people what we like to do is we want to start at the least 
what we consider to be the least risky alternative. We're going to start with that, HEPA vacuuming, microfiber cloths. We're going to start there. If that doesn't do it, then we're going to add you know, something to break the bond between some of these chemicals in the surface, maybe electrolyzed water first, and then keep moving our way up. And some of these cases where there's been heavy chemical exposures, we do get into oxidization, and we do talk about ozone generation, and, and not just portable ozone generator. We talk about flooding these places, but you better be a little sophisticated. One of the problems with ozone that people always hear is that it damages uh, rubbers and plastics and all of that. Well, a lot of that is actually related to the fact that much of the ozone that's being produced from some of these machines is cross-contaminated with uh, nitric acids. So depending on how you make the ozone, you're going to get nitrides that are also created. Well, those get into the air, they mix with the water vapor in the air, then you create this nitric acid. And it's the acid, actually, that's breaking down a lot of the rubbers and the plastics. So if you can get what I call clean ozone, which is kind of an oxymoron, if you will, but if, yeah. you, if you can generate the ozone more like it's generated in the real world, exactly, then you avoid some of these additional problems. But that means you have to be fairly sophisticated in terms of which equipment is out there and who's the manufacturers and they have to have some real experience in some of this so there's you know there's different groups that we use there's different manufacturers and there's even different vendors that supply it as a service in the field but understand what you're getting into understand yes. what the risk and that's in our mind is always going to be at least a third or a fourth step because absolutely the, the cleaning has to happen first some of the other uh, techniques that we talk about, uh, maybe even some of the neutralization with some of the softer chemicals that we were talking about with the vinegar and the ammonia there. And then only if we have these uh, continuing or lingering problems do we kind of bring out the big guns. And then we better know our, our, the effect of humidity on both, let's say, an ozone treatment or a hydroxyl treatment because sure. the, like you had already alluded to, the moisture in the air sometimes is the thing that in the wrong concentration will cause the ozone to do bad things in our homes and buildings instead of the good things that we're looking for. And this is the complexity I think probably people don't understand. And that is more true, I think, with the hydroxyl radicals than it is even with the ozone. The hydroxyl radicals, to make those, most of the hydroxyl radical machines are using a moisture in the air. They're stripping the, the water vapors H2O. So You've got the hydrogen, and that's what they're trying to strip the oxygen atoms away from. And then you've got that hydrogen radical, which is what a hydroxyl radical is, and that's very unstable, and it wants to reform with other things. And so you have to have adequate humidity level for most of your uh, hydroxyl radical machines to work properly. Right. And you want to be measuring that, obviously, so that you are calculating to some degree what you're doing so you can figure out what the result is. Yeah, at least monitoring it. I don't know if I would say measuring it, meaning like you're pouring exact yeah, right. amounts in or anything right, like right. that. You have to be monitoring it. You have to you have to have an understanding of what you're starting with and what you need. So yes. So what we're going to do, you've got it so easy to get to the articles, the five different parts. What we'll do with this podcast is on our Facebook page, and I think we can even do it on the web page is we will link to the Wondermakers page that has these five pieces that you wrote. 
And then there are also three accompanying articles that are complementary, and people should actually look at those too, and that bridges back into the mold also. Correct. So that part yeah. we can do, that that I know. What are some of the other things that you would want to cover with this, and then how would you want to wrap this up for people? Well, I do want to mention the the fourth track. So the the five parts of the article, there's an introduction, and then there's a track that we talked about in terms of the cleaning. There's a track where we talk about neutralization, good and bad. There's a track where we talk about oxidation. But then there's a, a fifth uh, part that's there that's talking about the off-gassing. And what we have to remember with chemicals, it's a little bit different than the mold in this aspect in that generally the mold and the fungal organisms are growing. And if we can remove the source, then what we have left to clean is whatever residue is around, but it's once we get that residue up, you're not going to have other residue from that mold because it's, you got rid of the source, you got rid of the dust, then it's yes. going to be gone. Yep. The chemicals is just a little bit different. This last track talks about how these chemicals, as I mentioned, even with the dust, they get absorbed and, and adsorbed and then re-released into the atmosphere. And that can happen with paint films and that can happen with different furniture and soft goods and draperies and clothing and everything. So from the chemistry side, you have to be a little bit careful with that. You have to make sure that you're dealing with the potential for off-gassing because we could, let's just say that we needed to use a clean ozone or hydroxyl radicals, and it absolutely took care of everything in the house. And for the next two days, the people are, yay, yay, we've taken care of this. The skunk odor is gone. The fire odor is gone. The, yep whatever was bothering me from the chemicals that they sprayed inappropriately when they did the mold remediation, which is a big one that we get into. But then it's two or three days in, then it starts creeping back. And then it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? They had a case just recently in the Washington DC area. It was a uh, townhome, row houses. They treated the house and the people were so excited after a year and a half, they're back in their house and they don't have any chemical exposures and they can sleep there and they actually have their home back and all of that. And a week or so later, things are starting to creep back in and now their health is starting to deteriorate a little bit again. And it turned out it wasn't their house. It's like they have two common walls. Yes. And so now unless you're going to treat the people next door, unless you're going to tell them that they can't use a whole bunch of chemicals or anything like that, the off-gassing, it appears in this case, the the off-gassing from neighboring homes eventually will work its way into the house like that. So what do we do in a situation like that? That's tough. Well, well, it is, but the first thing that we immediately think about is we got to positively pressurize your townhouse as compared to everybody else. We got to bring in outside air. We got to use a energy recovery ventilator or heat recovery ventilator, depending on what part of the country you're in and what makes the most sense for you. But you're going to pay a penalty. You're going to be running a motor. You're going to be paying an energy penalty because you have to bring in more air than what is naturally escaping from your house. You have to positively pressurize that or else you're going to end up pulling in all this other stuff from your neighbors, which they're just being normal neighbors. They're not, you know, it's not like it's curry smell from the kitchen or anything like that. It's just natural chemicals that are in fabrics and in cleaning products and the people next door bring their dry cleaning home. Well, you can't tell them not to have their clothes dry cleaned. Yes. But if, if it's a common wall and some of that is, and it's when you're chemically sensitized, that little bit that's coming across can be debilitating for you. So yeah, these, these are tough scenarios. There's no doubt about it. 
there's so many times that I wish we could color the air, so to speak, so that we could see the places that it gets through. I think almost everyone, if not everyone, would completely be shocked to understand how leaky a building really is because they hear the word barrier and they see plastic and, and all these things. But Tyvek you, and house rack. Absolutely. And- but when you get into these condominium, apartment building, townhome situations, what you just brought up is such a major issue that so many people deal with. And the positive pressurization is absolutely a penalty in the one sense, but it is really probably, for some people, the only fix that they've got. But they don't ever think about that part. It's life-saving. Literally. It is. There's a guy in Georgia. You should get him on, too. I'll get you his contact information. Yeah. He's probably, in my opinion, the best guy in the country in terms of pressurization and things like that so yeah we'll get you set up with that that, that is just one part of it and and then you get these people this is really the fun part of my job dean is that you get these people i get to know these people who are like pressurization experts or yeah. neutralization experts or ozone experts or hydroxyl radical experts and i i love them all because they all have information that can help us but it has to be organized. You're never, it's, life is a little bit more complicated than one shoe fits all Cinderella's or one technology fits all situation. So Yeah. So there's two things here. An important piece I want people to understand, and this is not to inflate Michael's ego, and he knows this, but to give credit where credit <laughs> is due and the skill set that you have the gifts that you were born with and the things that have been honed in you over all these years, the thing that I really appreciate about you is that you are a bridge builder and you are that person that you kind of attract all these other elements around and you're able to organize and sort and put order to things that a lot of people don't even think that they need to. And that is one of the the clear gifts that you have brought to humanity in the fact that you're obedient to bring it to humanity, right? that you're doing your job and you're reaching out to the people that you do. Obviously, you've got help with Susan and staff at Wondermakers. All these people make your organization just phenomenal. And so this is where I try to connect people to the things that you have either written or that you're connecting people to through Wondermakers. So people can go to wondermakers.com, right? Or wondermakersenvironmental.com, I think, is the full But if you type in any of those, you'll get there and you want to go to the education tab for sure, because there's some really good links there. That's where this article is going to be found. Then I want to throw in the disclaimer because I'm thinking about a bunch of my clients. And when I look at the articles in our trade magazines, I want them to understand this very clearly. Michael, like he's, he's already indicated is open to learning all the time and about cutting-edge techniques, cutting-edge products and equipment. You're going to get to these articles in this magazine. For some of you, I know what's going to happen. You're going to see advertisements mixed within the writing, and you're going to automatically assume that Michael is endorsing those pieces of equipment, those chemical products, those whatever, and I just need everyone to know. Michael doesn't control the advertising. 
in the articles in the magazines. Yeah, I don't okay. I don't control how they <laughs> lay it out or what they put next to it. And there have been some fairly embarrassing ones. Yes. Things that are being said in the article, the exact opposite of what they're advertising there. But again, that's a great comment, Dean. I also want to throw in one other with that, if you don't mind. And that is that you use the term bridge builder and took me probably 20 or 25 years before I really realized that, and I call it seeing the big picture. Yep. I just thought everybody's mind kind of worked the same way. Well, I see these things and it makes so much common sense to me and then I can explain it. I just thought it was always just an issue about explaining things and that everybody's mind works the same way. And what I have found is that obviously everybody's different and people think differently. And that's a good thing if we put it all together and draw on those different resources. But you're right. There has to be some of us. And I call it the other thing we talk about is I call it practical science. I mean, sometimes when I'm in a legal case, people will kind of try and nitpick my CV and say, well, you've got you say you've got 230 articles, but do you have any of those that are peer reviewed? And I say, well, yeah, I've got over my career, I've probably got a dozen or more that are peer reviewed articles. And they say, but you've got 230 that are written and only a dozen are peer reviewed. And the answer is, it's because I'm writing for a different audience. Yes. I'm not writing necessarily to my academic colleagues. On occasion, I do that because it makes sense and I need to bring forward a bigger issue that perhaps people haven't really started to think about yet. That's typically where you do all of the heavy research and do a peer reviewed article. But most of the stuff that I'm writing is this bridge building. It's the big picture thing. It's helping people put things in perspective. It's taking existing or even what you call cutting edge technology and telling people, how does it fit? How do people have never heard of EHR, an energy recovery ventilator, ERVs? And that's so standard in the, you get into the HVAC industry and everybody, whatever, everybody knows about that. Yeah, exactly. They don't. So it's, a it's lot of just, people don't know what HVAC even is. Yeah, exactly. You have to start. Yeah. You have to start simple and move from there. So, I appreciate that, Dean. If you recognize me as a bridge builder or somebody who sees the big picture and wants to share that, that is a truly a compliment to me. And I'll I'll take that mantle on because that's how we see our goal, and we also believe that in some respects it's a reflection of biblical wisdom rather yes. than. Just scientific knowledge is great. I don't denigrate the scientific method by any means, but science isn't necessarily wisdom either. Right. Well, and, and I'll throw in science comes from somewhere. So, yeah, we. Uh, I'll have a theological discussion any day with you, but probably not on this podcast. Yeah, there's some history. I think when we don't know our history, including history of science and the scientific methods that we have now we've already lost our way partway and we're already walking partly blinded. So, and that plays back into what we just talked about is there's a lot of information that's available for people if they choose to read it and if they choose to invest the time that they can get such a fantastic foundation for everything that we talked about today. There's good stuff out there that's written. And obviously the five part article is such an easy one for people to jump into and really get their mind wrapped around what it is we talked about today. And so anyone who's listening, I really encourage you. There are a couple different ways. You'll be able to go to the Facebook page, our website, managemold.com, and you'll be able to link to these articles. 
But if you're driving and you just want to remember something, go to wondermakersenvironmental.com and you will see on the top tabs all the information that if you have chemical sensitivity issues, if you have other indoor air quality issues in your home or the building that you work, that is such a great place to start. Michael and Susan and their staff have invested so much and for so long that website has been there and there's so much there for you to springboard from and to get really smart on the one hand, but then to gain some wisdom. And that's the key so that you make really good decisions going forward. There are too many people who make rapid decisions that aren't well-informed. And this is such a simple way for people to get informed. And for you coming on, I so much appreciate it. And the time that you've spent going through this with everybody, I think this is really going to be instrumental in changing probably a lot of people's lives for the better. Can I add one thought yeah, absolutely. Uh, to that? I just want to make sure that everybody understands. One of the things as a bridge builder and a big picture sort of person, I do tend to mention products and equipment and things that I have come across. And and I'm honest with them. I like them. I don't like them. I like them in these situations versus these situations. It's that whole big toolbox guy. And so I'm not quite as constrained as some people in terms of mentioning stuff. Yes. But I do want to point out that we do not take any finders fees, sales commissions, kickbacks, anything like that from any of these manufacturers. If you see something in my article and it mentions a hydroxyl radical generator manufacturer, or if you call us or if you end up talking with us and I happen to mention a trade name, a negative air machine, a HEPA vacuum, a style of microfiber cloth. There's good ones and there's bad ones. Yep. And so when people call me and they want help or they go to these articles and stuff, don't necessarily be surprised if you actually see some trade names in there, but understand that is based on our experience. That's just trying to give you the best information possible. We do not take like I said, finders fees or sales commissions or anything like that. We are not a marketing group for any of those folks. We're an educational group and people pay for that education if they pay for a class or something like that. And we feel that we want to give them the best information, but it's best at the time of what we think. The last thing I would say is that you do have to keep up with the articles because things do change in the industry over time. I've had people call me up and and essentially start chastising me about something I wrote uh, 15 or 20 years ago. <laughs> A lot of it still is true and is still in there, yes. but things do change with the time and everything like that. So every once in a while, you do got to be aware that there are publication dates on most of these things. There are, and they're important to look at. But I actually encourage people to go back to 1999 and read your stuff. Yeah. And I just tell them it's a historical record of where we're at. So to know where we were and then see where we are, you become wise in that. So I always direct well, them that way. Then, and the majority of it, if they're timeless principles, yes, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. For example, cleaning well to get rid of small particles, whether it's chemicals or mold or fire restoration or anything, there may be different ways that we do that. There may be different equipment, piece of equipment to help us, but that timeless principle, that's going to be in my articles from 1989, 1999, 2009, 2019. That'll be 40 years you'll hear me talking about that because it's it is it's the starting point for everything 
Yeah, well, you know, this may not be the best way to end it, but I'm going to end it this way because I sometimes do these type of things. And this is kind of how it works in my mind. A timeless principle that I think about and I share with customers often on exactly this piece is if you look back over a hundred years and you have a baby with a dirty diaper, probably not much has changed in a hundred years of how we get that baby cleaned up. (laughs) And we need to actually put the elbow grease in to do it. There's no amount of Febreze that's going to clean that baby up. (laughs) And it's it's the same exact thing, whether it's the chemicals, the VOCs, or the mold, fire losses, whatever. It's like you said, it's the timeless principles. And oftentimes, it's the cleaning that does the work. (laughs) I like it. We can end (laughs) with this one. Babies still poop. Diapers still need to be changed. Exactly. (laughs) Bottoms still need to be wiped. Yep. We use that as a basic understanding that probably works for our houses as well. I've thought about it, and I've thought about these little cartoon bubbles. Would you simply Febreze your baby? No, you're going to change the diaper. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Well, I don't know. That was kind of a strange way to end, but I think we've covered some good ground. I think you've gotten people some really good baseline information, and for them to hear, just to hear, for me, it's so important to hear the voice of somebody who has the expertise. Because there's something that is transmitted in that voice. Um, I listen to Audible books all the time, and I love when the author reads his own book. Yeah. And so this has been a real treat today. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with everybody. There will be many blessed by this, so I'm excited about that. Well, thank you again, Dean, for arranging all this and thinking enough of me to have me on. I appreciate it very much. And no, you didn't uh, like blow up my ego to the point where I'll... (laughs) I'll start doing crazy things or anything like that. I try and (laughs) remain as normal as I possibly can be. Well, that is fantastic. So we will chat again and I want everyone to have a fantastic day. I want you to help those around you. And if you know of people who could benefit by this podcast or some of the others that we've done, I really want you to go out and I want you to share. And we've got uh, links up now on our website. We've got some of those things organized a lot better for you. It's super easy to find the podcast, both on Apple and Android devices now. And I want you to go check those things out. And I want you to park at wondermakersenvironmental.com. I want you to learn, learn, learn. And then they have a sister site called Mold Sensitized. You can go to moldsensitized.com. And there is some really good information there for you. So for everyone listening to the podcast, I appreciate you being here. Go help your neighbor. Go help your families and love your enemies because life is short. And we've got a lot that we can help people with once you have the knowledge of it. Have a great day. God bless you. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Manage Mold podcast. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer raw and uncut on the podcast? All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do three simple things. Leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. In that review, ask anything you want related to your home's health. And if you want a shout out, leave your Instagram handle or name. That's all. Then listen in to hear your question answered live, raw, and uncut. This is Dean Malstead. Join us next time on Manage Mold.